Hi, I'm David Benedetto, co-host of the Writers' Forum on WRBH. Today I've got two guests for you, uh, both really interesting non-fiction authors, the first of which is Bronwyn Dickey, author of Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon. Take a listen. Welcome to the Writers' Forum. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am speaking with Bronwyn Dickey, essayist, journalist, and author, most recently, of Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon which is a fascinating look at the history and changing perception of one of the most well-known and misunderstood dog breeds. How are you doing today, Bronwyn? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. Oh, that's great. Well, you had this book come out this year, um, and I'm really interested to hear what got you interested in pit bulls in the first place. Um, I'm probably one of the most unlikely people to ever write about dogs. It's not a subject I was ever interested in as a journalist, so it happened kind of um, randomly, I had just gotten out of graduate school. I'd studied nonfiction at Columbia, and I was um, on an assignment, one of my first magazine assignments, uh, was some environmental reporting up in North Georgia. And I made friends with um, a guy named Buzz Williams, who ran the Chattooga River Conservancy up there. And he invited me over to, for dinner one night, and he happened to have this muscular black pit bull named Angel that the moment I saw her, I was actually pretty terrified because all I had ever heard about pit bulls is that they were, you know, um, volatile, unpredictable, violent. I had, you know, grown up in the 1980s when there were kind of all these scare stories about them in the media. So I was very, very scared of her. Um, and then we sat down to dinner and she kind of hopped up into my lap and curled up there for the rest of the night. Um, and, so I was, I just kind of had this moment where I was wondering, like, where, you know, I've never had experience with these dogs. Why am I so afraid of them? And what does the science really tell us? And I thought that was a question I could answer in about 15 minutes. But turns out it took me seven years. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of like spiraling uh, narrative out of control. That, that's interesting. Exactly. And it, it really was a subject that had so many layers to it that allowed me to explore so much other stuff that I was interested in, whether it was scientific literacy or media panics or even, you know, things like housing and human prejudice and discrimination. There were all these layers um, that was really, really interesting. Yeah, I, I found that really kind of fascinating about your book. This, you know, obviously the pit bull is the focal point, but it has all these other, other intersections, as you mentioned, and you get to talk about a wide variety of sorts and how this perception has changed over time. Yeah, and even historically, it was fascinating for me. You know, I was a history major in college. It was fascinating for me that if you just kind of took the the pit bull and used it as a lens, you could trace all these important moments in American history too. You know, you could go, you could travel back to old Hollywood. There were pit bulls in old Hollywood. You could travel to the beaches of Normandy. There were you know bull terriers uh, kind of hunting down snipers there. So it was this really kind of interesting um, journey through all these disciplines that I never would have imagined would have been there when I started started working on it. Yeah, well, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the, the pit bull was seen once as this heroic and noble uh, dog. Theodore Roosevelt wa- was praising them uh, when he was president and before. Um, where did the misconceptions and mischaracterizations come about? Well, um, one of the things that was interesting was that you know, it wasn't it wasn't a complete shift from positive to negative. They've mm-hmm. always been kind of a working class blue collar dog. 
Um, and so back even in the, you know, 16th, 17th centuries, uh, or especially 17th and 18th, back in Britain where they originated, um, you know, sometimes there were, there were aristocrats who thought they were dirty and savage and didn't want anything to do with them. But for working people, these dogs were always hugely inspirational. And so as America kind of changed how it viewed working people, the dogs went from, you know, if you think about kind of the depression Mm -hmm. where there was this, you know, American coming together and this kind of real pride in the American worker, that kind of thing. The, the unfussy sidekick dog was seen as this wonderful piece of Americana. Um, but then kind of as things changed in the sixties and seventies, and as there was more social upheaval and the, you know, working class or the, the underclass kind of became more targeted um, and vilified than so too did their dogs. Yeah, I can see that. And, you know, you mentioned that kind of like class divide right there, and there's also a racial component in there as well. Um, could you talk about that? For sure. Um, well, I mean, we've kind of always, uh, part of the way we see dogs is the way we see people. Um, and I trace that in the book. I go all the way back to kind of the, the origins of breeding, the Victorian fascination with breeding and blood purity that was really, you know, so much about the Victorian sense of, of what it means to be human um, and their kind of um, obsession with their own blood purity, um, which gave way to things like eugenics and social Darwinism and that very dark period mm-hmm. of history. Um, but so we've kind of taken that with us and used dogs almost as a proxy for that through history. So in the late 1970s and early 80s, um, when, as I said, there was so much social upheaval, um, massive deindustrialization in American cities, uh, rising crime, uh, huge kind of social tension and racial tension as well. Um, when some of the promises of the civil rights movement were were not kept or were systematically kind of undermined, um, the the pit bull thing came to be seen as, or the pit bull kind of came to be seen as an inner city dog, not just kind of a working class dog, um, which had a lot to do with, there was a huge, huge, huge boom in guard dogs as crime rose uh, from the late 1960s on, especially people who didn't feel they were protected by the police um, or didn't feel that they could depend on the police to protect them. So you saw in New York and LA and Chicago and Philadelphia, this huge rise um, in the popularity of guard dogs. And at first that was German shepherds and Dobermans. And then um, kind of as the media stuff around pit bulls got more intense than it became pit bulls. Um, And the more uh, the dogs kind of came to be labeled as quote, inner city dogs, the more fear about them kind of allowed people to, to use a, a type of dog as a proxy for human prejudice and human fear. You know, what they were really reacting to was, was you know, what they considered the urban underclass, but they just kind of, you know, used pit bulls as a way to, to I guess, put the attention on animals instead of people. That That's fascinating and, you know, also terrible in, in a lot of ways about um, how people will utilize that as a symbol in order to reach out and, and, uh, thrust terrible things on other people. Um, uh, kind of, kind of moving it towards the, the dog itself. I, I was wondering, uh, personally, what's your favorite 
aspect of pit bulls? Like I know you, you as you mentioned, you you have one, uh, and I, animals have you know different personalities depending on breed and, and type. But I was wondering uh, what what you most appreciate about the dog. God, you know it's it's been kind of. I think people probably don't believe me when I say this, but after after all these years of working on the book and after meeting so many hundreds, if not, you know, by now thousands um, of dogs, uh, certainly mostly pit bulls, but also Rottweilers and German Shepherds and Chihuahuas and, you know, just going around. I traveled through 15 states working on the book. So just hanging out in all these different kinds of neighborhoods and meeting all these different kinds of dogs, I've seen such a wide cross-section, especially at pit bulls, that I can't really, you know, to me at this point, there's really nothing that that kind of, that they all share other than a certain label. I've met dogs, you know, from every part of the behavioral spectrum and every type of personality. Um, And so if there's one thing I I think I've really come to appreciate is how um, how I guess resilient um, the dogs are, and how much they have been through, and how they still inspire people um, to they in- inspire such incredible devotion yeah. in people. Whether or not that has to do with the dogs themselves or what people project onto them, um, their history is just fascinating. There's no denying that. Um, and the things that are great about pit bulls are really the the things that are great about dogs in general. <laughs> uh, kind of moving a little bit more to you, uh, when did you start writing and, and what kind of led you to journalism? Um, I started writing, uh, I mean, I'd always enjoyed it, um, but I didn't ever think that I would be a writer. I think I probably assumed I would maybe go to law school or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but, uh, when my father passed away when I was 15, I went home for, I, I was actually at a boarding school at the time and I went home for about two weeks to kind of attend the funeral and deal with all the stuff that was happening at home. And I had a, uh, an outstanding English assignment when I got back and I could write about whatever I want. So I kind of, I wrote about that experience and I sent the essay to my brother who, was working at Newsweek at the time, and I just sent it to him because I thought he'd like to see it. But unbeknownst to me, he um, he sent it to another editor, a friend of his, who ran the My Turn column, and she actually really liked it, and she found it very moving, and she um, chose it for the magazine. Oh, wow. And so I had no idea that was going on, and, and I got kind of like a, a big bag of letters from people saying how much the essay meant to them. Um, and I realized how powerful writing could be as a way of, you know, just establishing communication between people and bridging gaps and, uh, and all that. So I started thinking about it then. Um, and then after college, I was kind of drifting around and, and really didn't, you know, I was thinking about law school, but I really didn't feel passionate about that. Mm -hmm. So I applied to the nonfiction MFA program at Columbia and thought, you know, this is my, I'll, I'll just try this one place. And, and if I get in, then I guess this, this whole thing was meant to be or something. And yeah. if not, then I guess I'll be waiting tables for a while, <laughs> um, which is what I was doing. Uh, but, but luckily enough, I, I got in and, and that was that. No, that's good. That, that's a hell of an introduction to writing. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's ups and downs. 
<laughs> um, well, speaking more of the craft, um, you spent seven years on this book, and that that is a that is a process, and that is a a huge project to undertake. Um, what advice would you give to writers starting out, um, or either writing books or just articles, and any advice that's helped you over uh, getting getting through projects such as this? Be kind to yourself. <laughs> give yourself a break. Yeah. I think. Um, you know, writing is such a high pressure thing to do. Um, it's so easy to think that it's so easy to compare yourself to other people and to think that, you know, whatever your last project was could have been so much better. Um, but you really do just have to let it go and do the best you can and realize that the whole thing is, you know, writing is a process you develop over time. Um, and that's what it means to have a body of work. So, um, it's something that I struggle with all the time, perfectionism and wanting things to be just so and looking back six months later and thinking about the point you could have made that you didn't. Um, but, you know, you'll quickly run out your sanity if you if you do that too much to yourself too much. So I think, you know, learning to take criticism, learning to take rejection, but also learning to be as kind as you can to yourself is really important. I think that's good. Um, well, our time is drawing to a close, but I did want to ask you one more question. Um, sure. What are you reading right now, and uh, what's next for you? Right now, I'm reading uh, His Bloody Project, uh, which was one of the the finalists for the Booker Prize, the main Booker Prize this year. Um, it's kind of like an interesting Scottish murder story, um, which I'm really enjoying. It gives me a nice kind of escape um, and what was the second part of your question? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's, what's coming up next for you? You got, you got the book out. Oh, yeah, moving yes. into 2017. Um, I have some very vague ideas about the next project. Um, I can't really say too much about it because I'm I don't want to jinx myself. But <laughs> it will it will not have to do with animals. Right. Uh, but it will deal with some of the similar themes that I kind of talked about in the book. Um, whether it was you know kind of uh, media hysteria, uh, moral panics, that kind of thing in the 70s and 80s. Interesting. Well, we're looking forward to that whenever you uh, get get the project going then. Thanks. I appreciate it. We'll uh, see. Well, Bronwyn, <laughs> this was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Bronwyn Dickey, author of Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon. Our next guest is author and researcher Lydia Pine, who has recently written a book called Seven Skeletons, The Evolution of the World's Most Famous Human Fossils. Today I'm very happy to welcome via phone line Miss Lydia Pine, the author of Seven Skeletons, The Evolution of the World's Most Famous Human Fossils. How are you doing today, Lydia? I'm doing well. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, looking forward to lunch, I, I hear, as we were doing the testing, uh, which is good. Uh, for, for starters here, I'm interested in how you became interested in paleoanthropology. Sure. So I think that my interest in paleoanthropology uh, really grew out of interest in history and in anthropology. And um, when I was an undergraduate, I double majored in history and anthropology. And working on projects like the seven, like seven Skeletons here, I uh, felt like they were very much projects that were able to bring together my interests in writing history about fossils, 
but to sort of look to the fossils as having their own kinds of biographies and writing a biography of a famous scientific object. And to me, that was a really sort of compelling way to bring together these kind of interests. Oh, very interesting. And, you know, it led to this book here after, you know, going to school for, for several years and getting your, your PhD mm-hmm. at uh, Arizona State. Um, That's right. Yeah. Well, t- tell me about this book. Like, what, what, why did you want to combine these seven skeletons in particular together? Sure. So I was interested in the question of what makes a scientific discovery famous. Why do some scientific discoveries become famous and others don't? Um, And specifically, why do some kinds of fossils become famous and others don't? Why do we know Lucy or Piltdown Man or about Neanderthals and not not about uh, the sort of hundreds of other fossils that that have been excavated and found um, over the last sort of 150 years of doing paleoanthropology. And so Seven Skeletons became a way uh, for me of looking at these questions of what, what sorts of science and what sort of cultural narratives come together to make a fossil famous. Interesting. And, and could, uh, what ends up making the, these fossils famous? Could you go through, through one or two of them? Sure, of course. Um, there are a couple of things that I think um, are very common to all of the fossils, though. And that was something that was really kind of unexpected and interesting to pull out of the book was that there are the details might be very different, but there are some sort of common elements um, for fossils that have a very compelling uh, story about their discovery, like a good origin story. Um, those fossils sort of sort of have a better chance of becoming famous. Or fossils that have scientific controversy, sort of things that get them in the news, that helps. Um, fossils that have discoverers who do a lot to sort of be able to market and to leverage and to sort of keep keep people interested in the fossils, whether it's through museums or through media or what have you. All of those sorts of elements, I think, go into creating the sort of celebrity culture around some of these scientific discoveries. Um, But you ask about uh, a specific example, yeah? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that one of the most interesting ones to me um, is Lucy, actually, which is one of, it's hard to find a fossil that's more famous than Lucy. I mean, that's sort of the fossil everyone knows. Um, And Lucy was discovered in November of 1974 by paleoanthropologist Dr. Donald Johansson in northern Ethiopia. Um, and when she was discovered, she, he immediately held a press release um, in 1974, a couple of weeks after uh, the actual field discovery. And at the press release, uh, there's actually, uh, he calls her Lucy. So even before she has a scientific name, she has this sort of presence of being Lucy. She's Lucy before she's anything else. And I think that, to me, that was a really interesting way to think about a scientific discovery, that it could have this kind of, this kind of anthropomorphized life before it has scientific um, sort of traction. Interesting. And uh, another one, uh, you mentioned controversy before in, in, in your answer. Uh, one, one of the seven is a, a fossil called tongue child. Uh, which That's right, is, the tongue child. Yeah, yeah. very controversial uh, when it came about. Still controversial in some circles, I hear. Uh, could you talk about that? Sure. So the tongue child was discovered in South Africa in 1924 by a scientist, Dr. Raymond Dart, who was working at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg in South Africa. And when Dart discovered the tongue child, um, he he uh, he created a publication, he analyzed the fossil, he um, composed his publication to scientific communities, um, published the fossil in nature. And in this publication, he described the tongue child as 
uh, walking bipedally, walking upright on two legs, and having a very small brain. And this was this kind of um, interpretation that an ancestor would walk bipedally sort of before there was the big brain was, uh, was very controversial and wasn't in vogue very much in the scientific establishment of Europe, um, who thought very much that, that big brains had evolved first. Um, and that was sort of the scientific um, theory that was, that was established in the scientific circles. And so when Dart publishes The Tong Child, um, he does it, not only does he offer this explanation that's kind of running counter to what uh, the establishment thought, but he does it in this very grandiose, very florid prose. Um, and the scientific community is just reading this, just, just thinking, what is this? Is that, you know, this isn't, this isn't how you should publish science. And so uh, Dart sort of ends up fighting this uphill battle for several decades uh, before the fossil is eventually accepted as a legitimate human ancestor. Wow. And it was also uh, that species uh, in 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's the one they were re referencing in Kubrick's film. Yeah, exactly. So actually Kubrick uh, does uh, base a lot of the, the um, sort of recreation of early ancestors on some of Dart's other theories that Dart published in the 1950s and 1960s um, on uh on sort of the bloody origins of, of humanity. Um, the, and Kubrick definitely draws from that in 2001. Yeah, and of course, when talking about these, these early ancestors, you have to talk about the, uh, the link to evolution in that theory. Um, could you talk about how scientists use these uh, seven, um, seven fossils in particular to uh, link it to certain modes of evolution or certain theories within evolution? Sure. One of the things that I think is so interesting about these fossils is that as um, science changes and as um, different, different theories um, get incorporated and sort of different questions get asked and methods get refined, uh, science keeps coming back to these seven fossils um, uh, to be able to work them in as characters, to be able to work them in as important uh, pieces of scientific evidence. Um, that there's something about them that scientists keep coming back to these fossils in particular, as well as as well as certainly other fossils. But there's something about these that that sort of requires the justification and requires um, requires that they sort of answer to any any kind of change that's happening in science. And I found that really interesting um, that that these fossils are able to command that kind of presence. Well, yeah, I think that's great. And, you know, going along with that, um, there is this process that goes along from discovering the fossil to uh, people finding out the, the exact meaning uh, of that fossil and what it means in this link of things. You, could you talk about that process from, you know, finding it until, you sure. know, these big announcements? Right. And so... So it's, it is a process, and I love the idea that it's something that's still happening, that uh, just because what we think about these fossils in 2016, um, that doesn't mean that it couldn't change, that if we were to come back in 10 years and 50 years, um, would these stories, how would these stories change? And so there's very much the sense that these fossils, uh, these fossil stories are being added to throughout their history. And that's one of the things that I found to be really interesting to think about, um, especially with some of the more recent discoveries. So flow that's discovered in 2003 um, on the island of Flores and assigned to the species Homo floresiensis, 
um, Sediba, Australopithecus Sediba, that's discovered in South Africa in 2008. Um, the stories of sort of how these fossils became famous are still unfolding, very much unfolding. And I think it will be really interesting to, to see in 10 years, in 25 years, what the stories of their celebrity really are. You spend a lot of time, you know, writing about these seven fossils. Do you, you have a favorite uh, that you, from, from writing about it, uh, <laughs> and, and why? That's a, it's funny. It shouldn't be a hard question, but it does feel like a really hard question. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it sort of feels like, well, which, which one of these do I like the most? Um, I really have to say that I enjoyed writing about Lucy. I really liked being able to work with the, um, the archives and the materials and the old newspapers uh, from the Ethiopian Herald and stuff like that. I thought that that was really interesting. Um, and I also really enjoyed working with the Tong child and researching and writing about the Tong child. And again, going, to, going through archives and finding unpublished pictures and tchotchkes and uh, just different doodles and all of the poems and all of the stuff that Raymond Dart, the discoverer, collected that people had sent him. Um, he gets basically what amounts to fan fiction um, being sent in in the 1930s um, about the Tong child. And this idea that these fossils have these sort of cultural lives apart from how they're studied in the laboratory, to me, was incredibly compelling. You know, uh, looking towards the future in paleoanthropology, you know, everyone has the idea of, you know, the khaki outfit looking down, uh, <laughs> finding things. Uh, how is that field changing now and, and what do you expect for it in the future? Sure. So I think that there is a lot of fieldwork that's still happening in paleoanthropology, um, sort of all over the world. Um, but one of the big changes I think that I see happening right now in paleoanthropology is uh, scientists working uh, to be able to disseminate information faster, to be able to publish about the fossils faster, to be able to um, involve the public in their excavations, whether it's through Twitter or blogging or Facebook or something like that, that I think that some of these fossils that had had such parallel cultural and scientific lives, I think that paleoanthropology now is starting to intertwine them more purposefully. Interesting. Well, Lydia, I know you got to go, but thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thanks for the time. It's always great to talk fossils. <laughs> oh, good. Bye-bye. <laughs> that was author and researcher Lydia Pine, whose book is called Seven Skeletons, The Evolution of the World's Most Famous Human Fossils. Before that, we had Bronwyn Dickion, the author of Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH, which you can catch every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., Saturday at 8.30 a.m., and also Sunday at 1 p.m. This interview, as well as all of WRBH's other interview programs, can be found on our iTunes podcast page, as well as our SoundCloud page, which you can find at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.